Hi everyone and welcome to the Wellness That Works podcast. Just Lily today, we haven't got Sam, um, but as always when it is just me, we find an amazing guest to cover and have a chat with. So today I am joined by a truly inspiring mental health speaker and he's also known as the bipolar businessman, which I'm sure we'll get into. I've got Thomas Duncan Bell with me today. Hi Thomas. Hello my darling, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm feeling pretty in the zone now. Okay. Today. So it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, really, really excited to be here. And we did, um, just while we were quickly, you know, sorting out tech, you just randomly dropped into the conversation that you're at, on the top of a mountain in Poland. What, what are you doing <laughs> up there? <laughs> so um, I actually, I left the UK and moved to Poland um, at the back end of 2018. Um, I had a son in February 2018, he's three and a half now, and I, my wife's Polish, so we decided that we were going to try and make the jump and move overseas just to have a better quality of life, really. For me, nature and the outdoors and this kind of thing is something that's inspiring, it's something that I probably I had quite a negative childhood but is the things that I hang on to from my childhood that were positive were the outdoors the greenery the camping trips those types of things yeah. and so where we live now is in the back end of beyond it's a small you couldn't even really call it a village it's a road with some houses and oh, there's a mountain um, so I'm in the middle of nowhere so it's it's kind of that 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 paradox between being in London and doing my sort of business uh, every now and then versus being in the back end of beyond and no one knows you and you're just you're lost it's a beautiful thing yeah I can imagine that sounds like such a dream you've already touched on the fact you know you had a difficult childhood and since then you, you've battled through addiction and found your way into becoming the bipolar businessman so starting from the beginning do you want to talk us through your your childhood and what it was like growing up yeah I guess um Listen, I, I grew up on what was a council estate in Milton Keynes, and um, <clears throat> it was an extremely abusive kind of environment growing up. My father, um, my father was probably the, the protagonist in that story, I would say. Um, my mother and father were both gay, and they were in a relationship, but both had previous marriages okay. and kids in previous marriages. But it was during a time where it wasn't really, it wasn't really acceptable to talk about who you really were. It certainly wasn't as open as it is now. I think we've got 15 or 16 genders, specifications, et cetera now. Yeah. So it was just, it was in a time where it was kind of old school Britain, um, certainly among grandparents, you know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear that kind of thing very often. So that, they were kind of pushed into a relationship that was not necessarily what they wanted and they had different ways of dealing with that. My mum was quite repressed in the sense of the fact that she was quiet and she was within herself, so she wasn't very outspoken and this kind of thing. Whereas my dad was extremely volatile and aggressive. He was also a martial arts instructor um, and he was a motorbiker. He was involved with the Hells Angels and this type of thing. And so he was a very man's man. Yeah you know, fighty type of personality. And, and, and there was an extremity of um, volatility every day in my life, really. I, I, you know, the earliest memory that I have is, is of my father smashing up my older sister's room. She must have been 
I guess maybe 10 and I was maybe three or four and I'm standing in the hallway and she hadn't done washing up properly or something or whatever. Right. And he was just destroying the room. You know, every door in our house had a poster or multiple posters on it where he'd put his fist through every one of them at some point. Yeah. So it was extremely aggressive. Um, and it was really challenging, you know, and that manifested into me sort of not having the societal kind of understanding or the understanding of what it is to be in a healthy relationship or healthy family unit. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that makes for, for challenges long term. And, and later, you know, being told I had, you know, issues with PTSD from this kind of trauma, which is something I never really thought about. Um, meant that I wanted to really explore how I tap into that um and my life definitely wasn't it wasn't easy from that standpoint you know not 95 percent there was a study done at one point 95 percent of all of our daily habits those things that we do automatically in our lives how we act automatically as human beings is governed based on the first seven years of our life so if you consider that for a moment that's the majority of how you operate day to day is developed in those first seven years so if they're chaotic or aggressive or volatile it doesn't make for an easy lifetime and it means yeah. you probably spend the rest of your life you'll never get you'll never change everything but you could spend the rest of your life trying to evolve and become a better human being off the back of that only five percent of the, the traits we learn are, are, are further down the road so that that was probably the biggest challenge for me i'd say and that is the big thing between like nurture and nature, isn't it? And when a lot of people go to therapy, just talking from, you know, personal experiences and stuff, it is always the therapist has to go all the way back to childhood because that is normally where the issue lies. But people suppress that because they don't think anything of it at the time or they think that everyone else is going through that. So that that I can totally see how that works with the seven years at the beginning. Mm. Um and I know that um, nowadays there's definitely still a stigma around mental health and being diagnosed with bipolar anxiety, depression. And I think, you know, as a country and a world, we're getting better at talking about it, but it's not 100% there. You got diagnosed in your early 20s, I believe, was it with bipolar? That's right, yeah, so it was really it was really late being told yeah. I was on the bipolar spectrum, to be honest. I mean, it, how, it, how was it being, I don't want to say how was it being diagnosed, but it must have been a different time even then, right? I mean, listen, it's a miracle I'm alive based on what was available and accessible. Wow. Um, and I, I don't poo-poo the NHS. My sister's a matron with about a thousand staff in the NHS, right? So I love the fact that we have an NHS. But at the time, there was no, there wasn't the level of support that you get now. There weren't yeah. the pathways you get now. I remember in the most, one of the most extreme cases, I was suffering from an extreme mania at one point i'd cut my chest open with a combat knife i went into a police station at three o'clock in the morning i told them i was going to kill myself and i needed to speak to someone to help me and they said there's nothing really we can do we don't have any counselors we don't have anything like that we don't have any doctors we can put you in a cell for the night and just lock you up for a night in a police oh cell God. like a criminal or we could or you can call a friend and at that time, I was like, listen, it's three o'clock in the morning. I've never told my friends that I feel sad all the time. Exactly. They don't know that I have any kind of level of depression. I want to take my own life. I'm suffering from this suicidal ideation in extreme. And in the end, I, and I didn't want to stay in a, in a cell for the night. So 
in the end, I wandered out into the street and I was, I was kind of lucky, lucky to make it through, you know, uh, you know, a similar, similar sort of time within weeks or months of that, I was stood on a train track at Guildford station, trying to take my own life, chancing it with the trains coming in and out. And, you know, there wasn't any level of support or help, um, that didn't cost a fortune. So if you weren't wealthy, you didn't have a chance to kind of bridge the gap or, or change the state of play for yourself. And I think that was that was one of the biggest challenges. And I always say to people, listen, my my journey is not, you know, is not the way it should go for people. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm speaking out now because I I'm more interested in talking people away from the ledge and letting them know that they're not alone in those moments, even though I know that in today's society many people still are despite what's available to them um, and that's kind of that's what I want to champion now I just going to those dark places I I just can't bear to think of anyone else ever feeling the same as I felt in those moments no definitely and I know you then started your blog uh the bipolar businessman based off of I mean what was the difference in time you were diagnosed and then so it was, was taken quite around, a while to be yeah like, so get your head around it <laughs> before I um before I started the blog I guess at that time I, I was put on like a I went to doctors and I said listen I want to take my own life they wanted to give me antidepressants within 30 days I threw the antidepressants in the bin yeah um I I was fine from 10 o'clock till three o'clock in the afternoon. And then I couldn't string a sentence together. You could ask me questions and I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah. Um, and I was, uh, I was a sales guy at the time. Um, so if you can't answer questions, um, if you've got no banter, you're not that great at generating revenue. So that was difficult. So I had to bin them. And ultimately I took it on myself at that point. I decided that my issue was a mental one. Yeah. And I wanted to find, I didn't know what the terminology would be or whatever, but I thought there's got to be a way to remap my mind, as I called it. If my issues have been caused by the stuff that I've been through traumatically during my life, how do I change the way my mind works so that I feel happier day to day? Now I'd say happiness is a mindset, it's not a destination. Right. Yeah. And I hate all these kind of <laughs> these little things that people throw out there. Inspirational <laughs> quotes. Yeah. <laughs> quotes from like wannabe thought leaders. Hate that. Not a thought leader, just a bloke trying to change some lives. Um, but that was kind of what I clung to at that point. It was walking a different way to work. It was playing some motivational music. It was yeah. anything I could do to get through the day. And fast forward 10 years, sex, drugs, alcohol, rock and roll later. Then I got to the point where. I was running my own business. I didn't have much money. I was sat in a networking group, about 40 or 50 people in the room. And a, a lady from a charity called Oakleaf uh, in uh, Guildford, who do vocational training for mental health, she got up and she said, listen, at the, the time she said like 19% of men will admit to having a mental health issue. And 2% of that 19 will actually put their name to it. Mm. And I looked around the room and I thought, who would be there for you on that train track? You know, because at the, at the time, all I cared about was money because we were so poor when I was a kid. I thought I had to have money to create sustainability, to create happiness. And sometimes um, people see that as the only success, don't they? If there's been pressure from family, you know, when they're younger. Massively. Yeah. I mean, I turn up now to do mental health keynote speeches in a three-piece suit. People think I'm a multimillionaire, but they sit up and listen. And if yeah. I did it in jeans and a T-shirt, 
you wouldn't get the same reaction. <laughs> but I'm getting into seriously big brands and seriously big companies because I look the part and it feels good. And people yeah. take you seriously when you look bright. And so that was one of my issues. I thought no one's going to be there for me. No one really cares about me here. So I started speaking about it and I set up the blog really. I didn't really know what a blog was. I was like, oh, blogs are just like for repressed writers, isn't it? Like people who want to write a book, but are crap. Um, Think they're they journalists. They write a blog, right? They yeah. write a blog. Guilty. So I, I looked up, what is a blog? And found WordPress and I started a blog. And I wrote a, I wrote a post, uh, a, a blog post for the first time. And I thought, I'm not going to do it every day. I'm just going to do it when the mood strikes me or when I'm in a state of anxiety, I'll do it to vent. And then about a week into it, my mum called me and she was like, I've just gone to join your blog. And it's like 10, it says join 10,000 other people following Thomas's blog. Oh, wow. I was like, this is absolutely crazy. So I thought, well, obviously people are interested in this kind of subject. And I took a marketing, not GDPR savvy now, but I took a marketing database I had at the time. It was about 50,000 people. And I thought, what are you going to do? Are you going <laughs> to bully the guy who sends you a blanket email about mental health? Who cares if you do? I don't want those people in my life. So I sent an email out to everyone said, here's this blog. And a couple of VPs at Unilever picked it up. Um, they passed it on to a guy called Jeff McDonald, who's a leading mental health campaigner in the UK. And um, he was formerly the global HR director for Unilever. <clears throat> and um, yeah, he, he, he met me and we spoke and he said, have you tried professional keynote speaking and this kind of thing? And he took me to some events and involved me in some of his organizations we i was part of an original team of about 25 to 30 people who set up an initiative called um minds at work which is um people from around the uk and europe who come together to try and change how mental health is talked about in business and um kind of went from there the institute of directors a hundred year old organization adopted me as their primary mental health keynote speaker and commentator I got an award there for leadership and mental health. And it was just kind of a snowball. Everyone wanted to, to hear what I had to say. And really, really all I did was I went to companies and on my own dime, I didn't get paid for this stuff back in the day. There was only about five of us in the UK who were willing to do this type of thing. There were no mental health keynote speakers. And, you know, someone who's had a mild brush with anxiety might try and sting you for a few grand nowadays. But sure. I, I just put myself out there got in the car, got on the trains, paid my way around the UK and just started going to share my story with people. And, and I met some, I, I probably changed more in the last six or seven years doing that than I have in all of the years prior to trying to change the state of play for myself mentally, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. And it is crazy in that six and seven years to, to see how far we've come and, but maybe not in other ways. So for you to be one of the only kind of mental health speakers out there but then it's also good to think back that six years ago big brands were trying to help their staff and like give people that support and awareness that they need and I think that is definitely you know especially in big corporations something that is really tried to you know push um, but sometimes mm. it can come across mm. quite fake so the fact that they had someone like yourself that had been in a high stress sales job prior, you know, being up and down the roller coaster of life like nobody else, it's yeah. it's it's a huge way of of talking about Listen, it. It's no uh, it's no surprise that the financial organisations were the first organisations who recognised that if people were mentally ill, they were losing money. Okay, yeah. so an in increase in productivity 
increases your revenue by 30%, right? So ultimately, <laughs> um, the CEOs of the big, big financial companies were the first to come to the plate. And actually, the last to the party were probably retail, where they, didn't, they weren't that fussed, and hospitality as well, where they weren't that fussed. Um, so it's been a strange time, and it's still going on, and there's still an evolution. One of the first companies I worked within was, um, was actually HSBC. So they hosted us for some of the mental health stuff that we did they spent i think three hundred thousand pounds the first year that i was working with them on various wow. mental health campaigns to try and create awareness um and help their staff internally and there are a range of companies who who are sort of at the forefront the starbucks and people like that who think very differently now but it is it that there's been a massive run of superficiality like i said you know people once people started to believe that Speaking about mental health made you a bit of a rock and roller, this kind of thing. You know, they wanted to charge you £2,000 for 20 minutes of their time to talk about a mild brush with anxiety. And it was all about lining, lining the pockets of those individuals who wanted right. to capitalise on this trend. Yeah. And it's still a bit like that. There's a lot of that. And I don't, I don't kiss people's bottoms and I don't do all of those political things that people should do. I just turn up and I'm kind of a mix of dave gorman and russell brand i like my powerpoints with my funky images and i swear <laughs> a lot and i kind of i'm down to earth but i tell it how it is regardless of how you see me as a big organization as a government whatever i don't care yeah ultimately it's about being real because only in expressing the reality of what you go through and you feel emotionally can you touch individuals and yeah. I, I don't care whether i'm helping a ceo at the top of the food chain i'm there to get to the staff the people who are in the rut the people who don't have the money the people who can't afford to change their life aren't privileged you know and that's that's the priority for me is to help help those individuals to change their own stars in the same way as in the same way as I have exactly and and that leads on to my next question you said about you know expressing your reality it's quite a big jump to go from writing a blog and you know documenting your thoughts which a lot of people you know say helps them to understand what they're going through and I guess that was the same for you but then to go from that to the jump of public speaking that's more vulnerability on your part I guess so how how did it feel when you first started getting into it and are there ever any times when you're kind of like oh today I just don't really want to talk to anyone and I want to hide at the top of the mountain in Poland <laughs> Yeah, I think I think as I've got older, I found it harder to interact on a public level. So um, sometimes I experience levels of not necessarily extreme anxiety, but certainly un underflowing anxiety when I'm in big groups of people. Yeah. I'm a really affable guy. So once I feel comfortable, I chat to people and engage. I trained at a drama school that I got kicked out of because I had mental health issues that they didn't want to deal with. Oh, and so the drama school kicked me out because they didn't want to deal with my mental health. Yeah. They didn't want to deal with my high IQ. They didn't want to deal with me questioning their methodologies. And so they booted me and took my um, dance and drama award away. So I had to go into work. I didn't have a choice but to do anything. Um, and And so I guess the public speaking just felt like the next step it felt like the opportunity for me to do a bit of what I was used to I'm six foot three I've got a six foot five arm span I'm bald and I wear glasses right so I look <laughs> like a cross between Harry Hill and Richard O'Brien if you can imagine that kind of on the stage yeah swearing exactly. <laughs> and talk to you calmly I jump about and I gesture and I'm all over the place giving people as much eye contact and energy as I can because I think that's what makes the difference but um I think that 
kind of came naturally to start with. What didn't come naturally, I think, was sharing some of what I'd been through. Yeah. Um, and understanding how to layer the extremities of what I'd faced so that it wasn't taking people into a point of triggering. Yeah. So I didn't fully understand how do you look after people's mindset in that moment? You know, luckily I've had colleagues and friends who have done speeches before and they've talked about things and they've explained very clearly how they've done certain things to themselves previously, which is not productive and can be triggering and upset people. And luckily I've never had anyone walk out of any of my speeches, Yeah. Um, which is great, but I have friends who have sent people to that point. And I think, so learning about that when a guy who just blurts it out and tells you how it is, was probably the most challenging, but I had, I had people, like I said, like Jeff McDonald, ex-global VP of Unilever HR to kind of support me and kind of mentor me through those types of things. And yeah, and I got better at it over time, you know, yeah. and now I regularly have people who come up to me afterwards and will say, this is, this is changing my life. I finally feel like I know who I am or what I'm facing, or I don't feel alone. I think the most memorable moment that I ever had was a woman, oh, I'm feeling teary now, but there was a woman who came up to me after, uh, after a speech I gave at an event in Wales at Cardiff City Stadium. And she said to me, um, I've got bipolar disorder and I haven't told my husband. She'd been married for like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. Wow. Hadn't told her husband, hadn't told any of her colleagues, never told anyone. And she said, how do I go about it? And I coached her through it and we talked about it that day and we had to keep out of the way of her colleagues so they didn't hear her talking about it. And she te she gave me a number, we exchanged numbers, and, th and the next day she texted me and she said, I told my husband last night and I'm so happy that I saw you. Now I'm going to cry. Mm. I'm so happy that I saw you, but you've changed my life forever. You know? And so for me, if I, if I only ever did that for one person, then anything that I went through or anything that I was spoken about would be worth it. But it, those are the kind of things that I see all the time. And that's really all I care about. I don't care how much you get paid. Most of my money goes to charities. Yeah. I, I'm not bothered about it. I just want to see people through those moments. And that's what inspires me to, to keep going, keep sharing. No, and also, definitely. I don't care about people's opinion of me now. Yeah. I don't care what you think. It's irrelevant to me. You know, I'm not going to let other people's issues... You know, it's, it's probably your mental issue, um, how you're treating me. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to feel guilt over it. I'm not going to feel discomfort over it. And I'm not going to let people govern how I feel on a day to day basis. And once you make that shift, once you forget about money, once you realize money is irrelevant and once you realize it doesn't matter what people think of you, your life becomes a much more free place to live. No, definitely. Oh, that's amazing, that story as well. And I think it's it swings and roundabouts at the moment because I, I am in the social media world, like that I'm I'm the social media person of WW. Mm -hmm. And so you fall down a spiral on, on social media where you see that people feel really comfortable to talk about what they're going through. It helps other people then talk about what they're going through. Younger audiences are learning to add trigger warnings to posts when they want to talk about certain mental health issues. There's still trolls, there's still bullies, you know, but at least people are feeling more confident to talk about it. There's clearly that stigma there. And like you said, the number of people that 
will come forward and, and say when something's benefited them or that they do need help or that they need to tell a family member that there's clearly that fear there to open up about it. So what else do you think can be done to bring down those barriers? And I, I think you said about schools like and getting people from a young age, right? Yeah, I think the biggest issue for me, uh, the biggest issues that I've faced that have sent me into those pits of anxiety have been the standard elements of day-to-day living, right? Dealing with finance, dealing with understanding what your vocation is, what your career is, what you were meant to do. You know, I was scouted initially by a scout for Youth Olympics team when I was a kid. They started coming to look at me. I was a top-end swimmer, 100 metres butterfly swimmer. And I was talking to this scout over the phone and that was my destiny initially. That was all I cared about. My mum took me to swimming. My dad took me to martial arts. That was how they stayed out of each other's way. And so that's what I remember of my childhood, swimming and martial arts. Yeah. And when my parents split, I just couldn't go through this process of being bullied at a swimming club, kicking everyone's butt at the swimming club them realizing that they can't beat you, they should probably be your friend and not bully you. There's this kind of hierarchical process and I've changed six or seven clubs over six or seven years competing. Um, and I think when, when you're going through that, I didn't understand how to deal with those emotions and I was at school at the time and I just kicked swimming to the curb completely. And there was a teacher at school um, and she said to me, I got in an after-school detention, essentially, just after my parents split up. And I said, listen, can't do this detention. Miss Lawrence, her name was. Um, and she was really well-known. Everyone recognised her. She had polio, so she walked with a limp. So she was advocating, talk about polio and how you deal with this kind of thing. Yeah. So we're kind of an inspiring woman in her own right. But she, she said to me, okay, do you know what? You want to get out of this detention, go and be in this play for me. And I said, I'm not being in a play. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll do a play, but I'm not doing an audition. So she said, okay, go to this audition and you don't have to do anything. Just go there so you've shown up. I'll get you a part in the play, but do the play. You can get out of the after-school detention. And I went there and I was made to read and this kind of thing. And when the play came around, um, I didn't learn any of my words. My my schoolhood nemesis, James Morell, will love hearing that he was my schoolhood nemesis, if he recognised <laughs> it already, um, who, who's the guy who always wanted the parts. He wanted the Dannys and Greece and all that jazz. He learned all of my lines and right. I learned one speech. And so he loved learning all lines. I wasn't bothered on stage. I was ambling around. But there was one point where I had to stand in front of the audience and there was no hiding. You had to say the speech. And afterwards, that was the only thing that the local newspapers talked about was this guy who stood up and gave this speech. And the applause from the audience that I got and this kind of thing and everyone saying, well done, that changed my trajectory in life. I went forward, I got, I auditioned for nine drama schools, I got into five, I got offered three scholarships um, of 45,000 pounds a piece, right? So no, no mess about money-wise there. And um, that changed my destiny and that was that one teacher. But I think one of the biggest issues in school is we don't have enough people like that. We have physical education, but we don't, under, we don't have anything that talks about mental education yeah. or, or much about life skills. How do you manage your money when you get a thousand pounds and you're you're 16 grand a year, first job, whatever it is. How do you manage that 1050 pounds after taxes? You don't know. It felt like everything to me when I started getting paid and I didn't know what to do with it. And I spent it on KFC and drinking and all the wrong things. And then when I got into sales and got good, I started earning more money and I was wasting it. 
So I think for me, I would like to see schools adopt classes that help kids to understand it's okay to be emotional. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're wet. It doesn't mean you're a wimp. It just means that you're an emotive individual. And actually, it's cool to care about people. And you have far more respect as you grow older, the more you care about people and the more you support people through life. And there's just, there's nothing like that in education. We're taught how to pass exams. I did nothing at school. I learned how to pass my exams. I passed all my exams, but I didn't go to most of the classes. I just listened to the boffins. Not sure if that's a politically correct term anymore. Who knows? (laughs) I listened to the boffins. That was what we called them at the time. And I regurgitated what they wanted into the uh, exams and I passed everything. Yeah, sure. I wasn't an A-star student, but I got all season above and it it covered the bases. So I I still say that, like... Why are we learning how triangles work, but we don't know how a mortgage works? And still to this day, I think back and I'm like, imagine if they just did little sessions on what it's like to rent somewhere or what it's like to get a savings account. It's the same 100%. thing. 100%. I used to walk into Tesco's on my first job was working at Tesco's, right? And um, I used to look at the cans of beans sometimes. And I just used to think, why do I know? how what the volume of that liquid is like, yeah. why <laughs> I, i'm not gonna use that but i know there are there are roles now where obviously you will use those yeah. in future, but we generally don't know about those things and no one gave me any guidance as to career so it was drama school or nothing for me and you only needed to see to get through which meant i didn't have to work too hard i just had to get by on charisma and, and a bit of adrenaline and, and, and it went from there. But then when I got kicked out of drama school, I was lost and that was it. And I was sad and I was low and it was the most awful time in my life, frankly. And there was no support from those those people that you thought were going to support you. Exactly. And, and the pressure comes from everywhere. It comes from the school. It comes from your parents, potentially. It comes from your peers. You know, you're comparing yourself to other people in the class. So it is. And, and like you said, if in the first seven years, you have a little bit of school, even in that period of time, you're going to remember all of that and, and that feeling of failure, potentially, that will then 100%. follow you into adult life. So I agree with you. I think 100 percent it needs to be that talking about your emotions and, and your worries should be a safe space for, for younger people. But I guess also we talked a little bit earlier around adults and you obviously work a lot in the workplace and and externally as well but do you think there is more that can be done in in the adult space you obviously got diagnosed very late and even on again I'm sorry to use social media as an example but on places like TikTok people are getting diagnosed with ADHD at their 30s and it it suddenly makes sense why they had to change who they were through their 20s to adapt to life so is is there more that can be done for people to realize who they are beforehand. I think the, the, the phenomena of this ADHD thing and the, the rapid rise in ADHD is based on the fact that we are reactive individuals. Mm. So if you're checking your phone first thing in the morning, if you're checking your phone last thing before you go to bed, it's making you reactive. So when you wake up in the morning, for example, you you release endorphins based off the first things you do in the day, right? And if I'm going on social media, I'm checking how many likes I've got then my mind is releasing endorphins off the back of whether I've got likes, whether I've got shares, etc. And ultimately, if I don't get those, then I'm impeded by that longer term. Whereas if I wake up in the morning and I play with my son and I take him for breakfast or I take him to school or we do something together, 
then those endorphins are being released off the back of that activity, which is much more productive in your life. And unfortunately, there's so much mainstream media out there. You see people taking social media detoxes and things like that. I've got five companies and I've just invested in number six. And ultimately, I can't completely remove myself from social media all the time. It is challenging. But I do know how to turn my phone off and put my phone away now. I do know how to ignore calls. I don't get back to emails immediately. Tough. If you don't like it, tough. I'll get back to you as it's needed. So I have a category in my senses of urgency as to what I need to do to run my businesses and run my life. But I think that when we get trapped in this spiral of reactivity, Mm. you're more volatile. The way it's exacerbated in life then is if my son isn't quiet immediately, for example, because I have that level of reactivity, you're shouting at your kid far faster. You've lost your patience. You can't calm down when you go to bed. So you get a restless night's sleep. And people think it's hocus pocus, but it's just fundamental science. Yeah. And so I would say for anybody who hasn't tried it, just don't use your phone or technology for the, lot, the first hour of the day or the last hour before you go to bed. Read a book before you go to bed to calm your mind down, do a meditation, some yoga, whatever it is, and don't watch any telly. And in the morning, go and do a run. If you're single and you don't have kids, Happy days, you've got a lifestyle that I used to have. <laughs> sit and have a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, sit and have a cup of tea and think how lucky you are that you don't have to run around after a three or four-year-old. Um, and then go for a run or whatever it is, but do something productive that releases in those endorphins for the right reasons. And yeah. you can live a much more stable lifestyle off the back of that. Exactly. And we talk about that a lot at WW and, and it can come across a bit hippy-dippy sometimes. But like you said, it's scientifically proven it, you're filling your day with those little pockets of happiness rather than trying to fit it all in one 15 minute session where you're just looking at a screen for it so I, yeah it totally makes sense 100 the world yeah. won't crumble if you don't get back to that email immediately you yeah. will learn that if you check your emails at something like 11 to 5 job done right that's that's probably the best way to do it outside that do your work and have your daily life but Ultimately, I think that's one of the biggest challenges people face. What I'm trying to do in businesses is I'm launching an app called My Whole Self, which is um, which my mental health company. Yeah. And the concept of the app really is looking at kind of what I consider the six core pillars of well-being. So it's your physical, your social, your career, your financial, your community and your emotional well-being. And ultimately, the app is designed really to make people more human. Okay, Um, there's lots of clinical apps out there that analyze you and you put sad faces and smiley faces and things like that to tell the app how you're feeling and all that kind of stuff, which is great. It has its place. But ultimately, for me, I feel patronized and I don't want that in my life. What I wanted when I was in the depths of despair, feeling like I was on my own and didn't get any help, I wanted to learn how to help myself. And so the aim of my app really is to give people the tools and I'm personally curating the content from a wide range of partners that helps people to understand how to get through certain things. And we test people on those areas. So we ask them questions about, let's say, their physical well-being, for example, and they answer questions and we give them a score and then they can go and learn from areas of the app and give them curated content within the realms of physical for example that helps them to grow within those areas that they're struggling and um, and that's the premise of it without being too clinical or anything it's just teaching people to it's it's the, it's the analogy of giving people a fishing rod 
rather than a fish, right? Because you run out of the, you run out of fish early. Well, I'm I'm vegan, so we don't eat fish anymore. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always feel bad that. using the. Uh, I always say killing two birds with one stone. I'm like that's such a bad thing for a like, vegan no, to no, say. Do it, do it. I can I can kill a fly. But yeah, so I, I I prefer to give people a fishing rod, and that's what my app is aiming to do. It's to help people solve their problems themselves, so they don't feel they have to reach out if they don't want to. The yeah. silent majority, as I call them, um, and that's that's really that's really my focus now in 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 business. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about the my whole self um, option and and the online courses that it offers. Check it out. It's just myholeself.co.uk. You can go and look up the courses and things like that. And we've got a super sexy website launching with the app soon, <laughs> and you can do the courses on the app and all that kind of thing. It's it's going to be quite exciting. So, yeah, I'm re- I'm really going for that right now. It, it's really amazing that you know through what you're doing with your your business and then the app that will be coming out really soon that my whole self will be able to give people that opportunity so no it's it's really great and obviously you know you've been through a lot and you've managed to turn it into something that is positive both for you in the sense that you have now you know somewhere to to talk about it but then you know like you said that you're you're helping others so no, it's, it's really amazing and, and it's really inspiring. And I'm sure so many people listening today, you know, will, will be feeling the same way as a lot of your, you know, speaking audience have felt in the past. I think I just, you know, I know we have to close soon, but I think ultimately the whole focus is to let people know that they're not alone. Yeah. We, there's no, no one has the monopoly over pain. We all suffer. We all fear, we all feel. You know, to quote a bit of Star Wars, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to (laughs) suffering, okay? No one says it better than Yoda. And ultimately, (laughs) that is what I want to help instill in people. Don't fear understanding what a plant-based diet is. Don't fear taking a setback from alcohol. Don't fear a bit of physical exercise or don't fear injuring yourself on a Spartan obstacle course. Yeah. Just go and get stuck in and have a go. That's what life's about. You've got to sap the marrow of it, uh, the marrow out of it. And if you don't go to your grave battered and scarred, what was the point in the journey in the first place? No, definitely. It's so true. Oh, don't, oh Thomas, I really want to talk to you all day. <laughs> but we won't do that because I have work to do and I'm sure you have Not a lot of work to do. Too. Yeah, I totally understand. I totally understand. Oh, no. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been amazing. And um, obviously, for anyone that wants to know more about you um i guess it's just a case of googling the bipolar businessman and they'll see where you're going any talks you're doing what's the best way to look yeah i guess check out the bipolar businessman.com or check out my and by all means reach out i'm on linkedin and i'm on I, I, instagram is the quietest of my social medias where i don't oh, just add everybody but <laughs> if you want to find me there you can find me under the handle at the nomadic spartan um and yeah i mean i'm not one of these guys for plugging all sorts of stuff but i'm i am one of these guys who will get back to you will talk to you and will help to support anybody who comes my way and that that's the main thing and for you know for corporate companies who want to get involved want to learn how the app can support their staff um or want to run a corporate challenge where we go to some crazy location like the inca trail or something and run your staff through some stuff then let's talk about it i'm all about changing lives as best as possible oh amazing no thank you so much i hope you have an amazing day 
up in Poland, I'll be thinking of all the lovely views you can probably see. <laughs> I'll be back see. in the UK in the next couple of weeks. Oh, okay, uh, you'll be back to the rain. It's Mental Health Awareness <laughs> Month in October, so I'll be all exactly. around London, all over the place uh, very shortly. So I'll, I'll, I'll savour it while it lasts. Well, bless you. Well, thank you everyone for listening as well. Have a lovely week and we'll see you next time. Bye.